Welcome to the Murthy teleconference series designed to benefit employers of foreign nationals. We would like to take this opportunity to remind you that the information you're about to receive is exclusive copyrighted material of the Murthy Law Firm. Accordingly, any unauthorized recording is prohibited by law and cannot be disseminated without our prior written permission. Without further ado, it is our pleasure and honor to introduce attorney Sheila Murthy. Welcome. I'm Sheila Murthy, President and CEO of the Murthy Law Firm. Thank you so much for joining us today. I'm so honored and delighted to have two of our brilliant attorneys joining me as we analyze and discuss the President's executive orders and the impact on you and your business. Uh, as we all know, our goal at the Murthy Law Firm is to continually share updates so that we can empower you with the latest information and knowledge so that you can be better prepared to run your business and focus on your core uh, functions, whether it's running a technology company or running a health hospital or running uh, an engineering company, etc. We have not even yet reached the 100-day mark of the Trump presidency, and yet we have seen a lot of new executive orders, leaked executive orders, and other signs that there's going to be major changes that have been taking place in this administration. In fact, just by mid-March of uh, this year, 2017, we know that uh, Trump requested an additional $3 billion in supplemental funding to build a border wall and to hire more ICE and CBP agents. Uh, and basically focus on combating all kinds of fraud measures. So for this teleconference, we will focus primarily on the executive orders, what has already been signed uh, as executive orders, though we will certainly talk about issues dealing with employment-based immigration for you all as employers. And we also want to take a moment before that to briefly discuss the difference between an executive order, a regulation, and the law. So with that, can I have you, Aaron, just give us a brief overview? Sure, absolutely. Um, so when you're dealing with executive orders, regulations, and laws, it's critical to know the difference because each one has a different, shall we say, strength to it and a different ability to be enforced. So when we're talking about laws here, we're talking about a legislative process law as opposed to a law that would come through the courts. And essentially what a law is, is there's two branches. There's the House and the Senate. They make up the Congress. And the House and the Senate, each one comes up, one can come up with a bill. That bill gets put back and forth around. They decide exactly how to refine it, what to include, what to exclude. When they finish putting that bill through, it comes out of committee and it goes up for a vote. Assuming the bill gets a yay vote, a positive vote, the bill then can move, for example, from the House to the Senate. Before it gets to the Senate, it goes through a reconciliation process and then goes to the Senate, where, again, it goes through the same process and finally gets voted for a yay or a nay vote. That process, which is the process of creating a law, when it's completed, whatever is left and whatever is the finalized bill that's completed then gets presented to the president for a signature. And once that's presented to the president, that becomes a final law. And that's how laws are created. And laws are laws. Those are the strongest uh, portion of what we have. Now, if you move forward from laws to, for example, regulations, so once a law is created, a law says the concept, the idea, what we're trying to put in place, but it doesn't necessarily have the finer details of how to actually implement the law to make it go forward. So once a law is signed, it's usually a, once a law is signed into, once a bill is signed into law by the president, 
it's usually then sent to the agency that's going to be implementing to the implementing the law t- and with instructions for them to promulgate or create regulations. The regulatory process is very interesting. If you can consider them as operating instructions almost, in other words, how we're going to process or how we're going to implement the law, uh, agency goes ahead and creates regulations, operating instructions, and submits it to an office called the Office of Management and, and Budget. And that can take months, years, or like never, like happened with AC21. We still don't AC21 have... AC21 was almost 15, 16 years. Yes. Mm-hmm. Correct. And once it goes to the Office of Management and Budget, the Office of Management and Budget reviews it to make sure it's not going to be super costly to the United States, to make sure that it doesn't contradict other regulations or other laws. And then assuming that it doesn't, they publish it in a place called the Federal Register where it's open for notice and comment for 60 days. During that notice and comment period, anybody gets to put their concerns, their comments, their questions, their issues all to get to be included. I believe the last one, the one on AC21 that was recently published on January 17th, and the one that was done for the H4 EAD that was a year before that, I believe got between 25 and 50,000 comments on those uh, particular regulations before they were finally published. Once the notice and comment period is over, those comments are taken back to the agency, and the agency reviews them, responds to almost all, groups them, responds to all of them, modifies, changes the regulations if necessary, and then sends it back to the Office of Management and Budget, who again reviews it to make sure it's not going to be too costly to the United States, that it doesn't contradict any, any of the rules that are currently existing, and then it gets published in the Federal Register as a final Uh, as a final regulation. As Sheila mentioned, sometimes these processes, if they go really quick, could be six, eight, ten months. Sometimes if they're slow, if a government agency is not putting it as a priority, it could take five, ten, sometimes 15 years in the case of AC21. An executive order is the weakest of all these three. And what an executive order is, it can't really, it can't contradict a regulation and it can't contradict a law. But what it can do is if a regulation is being created, an executive order can give instructions on what type of policy or big picture vision they should be using when creating that regulation. An executive order can ask to review existing regulations to, so to speak, um, determine if the regulations are still in line with the intent and purpose of the law or of the of what the the current administration perceives as a law. And if it's not, they can ask for the regulation to be modified or recreated uh, in another area. Again, having to go through the entire regulatory process. Uh, As you can see from both President Obama and from President Trump, uh, even though a president can issue an executive order, such as the Trump bans or as the Defense uh, Action for Parents of Americans, or DAPA, uh, under Obama, these things are subject to review by the courts. And if a president oversteps where he's actually violating an existing regulation, violating an existing law, the courts can prevent these from being implemented and from being able to go forward. Thank you, Aaron. So that's a really good overview. And as you can see, we obviously in the last 100 days, or above approximately 100 days of Trump's presidency, we have not had any major change in the actual statute or regulate or statute or law, or even in major any regulations that he has introduced or his administration has introduced, except that we have some of those from Obama's term that are that became effective, you know, from January 17th, 20 
2017, the one that Aaron just referred to. So what we're going to just focus very briefly is some of the executive orders that have actually been signed by President Trump. And so if I can have you, Joel, just briefly touch upon the border security and immigration enforcement improvements Sure. So this is one of the first two executive orders that President Trump signed related to immigration. Um, And this uh, a lot of the focus here is on securing the U.S.-Mexico border. So you've heard a lot about this on the campaign trail. We've heard a lot about it since then. Um, But uh, this is kind of focusing on calling for the building of the wall or or the fence between the U.S. and Mexico. talks about uh, there are some other related issues about creating more detention facilities on the border so that people that are caught coming in uh, coming in without authorization can be detained and then quickly removed. Um, there's also a focus on reassign- reassigning asylum officers to detention facilities to allow them to conduct what's called a credible and reasonable fear interview. And, and that's based on if you're if you're applying for asylum, you need to show that there's a credible and reasonable fear. So the judges there, uh, the, the judges that are signed there are to kind of make that initial determination to see whether or not there is an asylum case to kind of proceed with. Uh, in addition, um, President Trump directed that immigration has been reassigned to immigration judges, immigration judges to, uh, to be reassigned to conduct removal proceedings uh, to ramp to speed those up and to, to keep. Um, keeping to remove people that have entered uh, unlawfully or that are here unlawfully. And it also calls for the hiring of additional border control agents. Okay, thank you, Joel. And I don't know that much of that is applicable to many of you as employers of H-1B or foreign national workers. But the next one, which is the uh, executive order signed to enhance public safety in the interior of the United States, although it may appear to directly not be applicable to you, actually it could apply to a percentage of your employees because of possible unintended consequences that we're already seeing being implemented on a regular basis, both by the Customs and Border Protections, uh, Protection Agency of people entering the United States, or by ICE agents within the interior of the United States, or by CBS, uh, uh, USCIS with the FDNS. But basically, under this executive order, the one that enhances public security in the interior of the U.S., it's basically the priority is to focus on removable aliens, i.e. deportable, that is deportable aliens who they say are convicted of any crime charged with a crime that has not yet been resolved. So even if you've just been charged with a crime that's not been resolved, potentially that's a big problem. You've committed a chargeable criminal offense. You've engaged in fraud or misrepresentation in connection with any official matter. That's almost every ever so often visa applicant that we see with the 212A6C fraud finding. Abuse any program to achieve public benefits subject to final order of removal or otherwise posing a risk to public safety or national security. And this was very troubling to most of us as immigration lawyers when we looked at it because we said, oh, my God, so when you're coming into the country, if the agent looks and says, well, I think you might pose a risk to public safety or national security, it's sort of broad, it's vague. And I guess we're all very concerned about what this really, really means and whether it could impact your employees and good people who may have made a mistake for whatever reason in their lives. So the, according to this executive order, the, there are civil penalties which are owed for being unlawfully present or aiding those who are. 
They want to hire 10,000 ICE, Immigration and Customs Enforcement agents. They want to authorize state and local law enforcement to enforce, investigate, and detain undocumented aliens. And by the way, there's been huge pushback on this, as you might have watched on TV, where city like San Francisco, city like Seattle, couple of states, I think, in the Northeast, they're all basically really saying, hello, this violates the 10th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution. It violates the spending clause. How dare you make me, force me to uh, enforce federal immigration law that is within the sole jurisdiction of the federal government and not within our budget uh, of, of, for us as states or local jurisdictions? And also this particular executive order of Trump withholds federal funds from so-called sanctuary cities. Again, San Francisco has fought back against it. And it provides uh, support to, um, and basically they want to provide support to victims of undocumented aliens who've committed crimes. And we saw that in his uh, talk before the Congress where he found a couple of people who had been impacted negatively and used those uh, to make a point. Um, so that's the second executive order. And then there's a couple more that you, many of you have heard of, which I'm going to ask Aaron. Aaron, do you want to talk a little bit about the travel bans? Or I do. But before we jump to the travel bans, I just want to make a point. You know, if you look at this and you say, well, I'm an employer. What does this have to do necessarily with, with me for an individual uh, foreign national who's coming into the U.S. or is in the U.S.? Uh, they're a removable alien potentially under the regulation or under the law. So why does that impact me? And I'll explain to you a little bit just for a moment why before we jump to the travel bans. You know, if you look at the concept of what's a removable alien. So if you're here in the United States, say, on an H-1B, and you're working at the wrong client location and you knew about it in advance, or you've been benched without pay, or, or there's other issues that come up that lead to the question of your removability, just that fact that there's the potential for you to be removable makes all the criteria that Sheila mentioned, uh, including otherwise poses a risk to public safety or national security, on the table for you to become a priority. So you would well, say so again. Well, so talking to employers now, so for your employees. Right, so I'm saying, so now you would say again, I'm the employer but not the employee. But when you look at the penalties associated with this, collect civil penalties owed for being unlawful presence or aiding those who are, or aiding those who are. So here you're doing something where you say, it's unfortunate, the guy has to be benched, look, he can always go back, he can come again, he can fix his situation, so on and so forth. That benching, if it's perceived as somebody who's no longer a lawful person in the U.S., who's potentially removable, now that opens you up as well as the employer to potential civil penalties that can come through. In other words, officers, there's what's called the doctrine of unintended consequences, where that you can take something that was written for one purpose and officers feel empowered to extrapolate off of that and come up with other purposes or other ways to enforce it. So it's just a note of caution to when you're reading this to understand it really depends who's reading it and it really depends on how high they're hitching up their pants when they want to get involved with it, that's all. Um, I'm going to jump forward to the travel bans. As you both, as everybody I'm sure is aware, President uh, Trump uh, has tried to put forth two travel bans, 
One was a January 27th and one was a March 6th. And uh, both of these travel bans have been prevented from being put into play. Uh, both of these travel bans applied to uh, first seven countries and then six countries that were majority that were Muslim majority countries, and both have been blocked from being implemented by the federal courts uh, based on evidence that they may or potentially could could have been specifically targeted towards um, towards Muslims. Okay, Joel. Um, so we want to also discuss the ban, the electronic no, ban. No, before that, we said that January twenty seventh. We well, the January 27th ban was rescinded, but the March 6th ban, which would apply to foreign nationals from Sudan, Syria, Iran, Libya, Somalia, and Yemen, that will likely never go into effect uh, unless they can clear the preliminary injunction, which would require it to be reversed on appeal. Okay, thank you, Aaron. Joel, then do you want to talk a little bit about the new electronics ban? Yes, yeah, so we, well, uh, uh, it's been, a uh, it's been a, yeah, about about a week or two now. It, it went into effect on March, thir- uh, March 21st. Um, this was not an executive order. It's an executive action. I'm, I'm not going to give you too many details about that, but this is just something that's done through one of the uh, agencies that do fall under the purview of the president. And they're banning certain electronics, basically any electronics larger than a cell phone, on direct flights from airports going from uh, from outside of the U.S. into the U.S. And these are flights coming from Egypt, Jordan, Kuwait, Morocco, Qatar, Saudi Arabia, Turkey, and the UAE. So any direct flights from those co- from those countries, people are not allowed to carry with them into the cabin of the plane um, any <clears throat> electronics larger than a cell phone. So that would include tablets or your digital camera, obviously a laptop. Um, this applies to everyone coming on those flights. So even a U.S. citizen, um, it, it makes no difference if you're going to be on those direct flights. They would, those things can go on the plane, but they would have to go in your luggage. Um, this ban applies through currently through at least October 4th, 2017. Could go on beyond that, that date. Um, could be expanded. It's, it's hard to say. We, we have heard recent news about um, potential terrorist use of uh laptops and other types of devices for for bombs. So um, that clearly was related to this electronics ban, but we don't have a whole lot of detail yet. Um, But for the time being, um, if you're going to be coming from those countries uh, on those direct flights, you are not going to be able to carry anything other than your, your smartphone. Okay. And sorry, uh, d- uh, before we get to the anything that might happen or what plans for the future with Trump, etc., there are two really hot button issues that have just been released this week. In fact, on Monday, April 3rd, we had uh, a brand new policy memorandum being released by USCIS where they opined, uh, which was very sneaky and tricky, we think, to wait till after Uh, Most people had filed H-1B petitions to say most computer programming jobs would not qualify for an H-1B specialty occupation because most computer programmers only require an associate's degree or work experience for a couple of years. And hence, generally, specialty occupations uh, would require at least a four-year bachelor's degree or higher, and in particularly with level one. So if you as an employer have put level one uh, or a lower level, maybe even possibly a level two, the question is, they're saying if the job does not require a whole lot of experience or a four-year degree, then in our opinion, that potentially could be a problem. And this is after they've had all these hundreds of thousands or several hundreds of thousands of petitions filed, collecting all the fees and cashing the checks, and then 
really playing this trick on employers and employees after doing that. The second thing that they also released where USCIS has now created an avenue for American workers to report abuse, uh, also released on Monday, April the 3rd of 2017, is where they're focusing, and many of you as technology companies, particularly H-1B dependent employers, i.e. those who have a high ratio of H-1 dependent workers as compared to U.S. workers, and those employers who petition for workers who work off-site um, in the employer-vendor-client sort of model, EVC model, or the organization's locate, location. They're basically saying we're going to send targeted site visits. We're going to focus on it. We're going to continue to push for it. We're going to continue the random and un unannounced visits nationwide. And they're going to focus on employers who have abused the visa program negatively um, by decreasing wages and job opportunities as they continue to bring in more foreign workers. And what they've also done is they've said that they are recommending that individuals report allegations of employer fraud or abuse by submitting form WH-4 to the U.S. Department of Labor, and they submit to wage and other division, or they complete the ICE, Immigration and Customs Enforcement, Homeland Security Investigations, HSI's tip form to file complaints against employers. So trying to make it so easy is almost an invitation that somebody with a grouse could file a complaint, and they're creating an entirely new section on the USCIS website called Combating Fraud and Abuse in the H-1B Visa Program on their webpage. Um, and obviously, we're going to write articles on both of these very new and recent trends, which we think are somewhat alarming. I mean, nobody's encouraging violation of any rule, but it's certainly alarming when it's being encouraged so you can make up uh, or exaggerate claims. Yeah, and what's really interesting about the computer programmer portion is if you go to the OOH, they actually reference the OOH, the Occupational Outlook Handbook, and they say that despite what it says, and if you look on the Occupational Outlook Handbook or the OOH, you'll see that it indicates 78% of the computer programmers require a bachelor's degree or more. And what's interesting about this is they use a standard for reviewing these cases, which are called matter of Chawatha. Without getting too specific, the standard is more likely than not, 51%. So based on that and based on the policy memo guidance from 2000, you would say the OOH says it's 78%. The standard is Chawatha, 51%, more likely than not. The policy memo says computer programmers are good, and they still say, nonetheless, too bad. Programmers specifically, we're looking at differently. We're assuming that the majority of them don't require the bachelor's degree. So I would agree with Sheila. It does feel a little bit strange that the memo came out, the policy memo came out on March 31st, the day after the majority of people, in the evening, the day after they the majority still of people late in the end of filed the day their quota and cases. released the memo only on Monday, April the 3rd. So nobody could have looked at it before filing all those petitions to reach USCIS from today onwards. Isn't that sneaky, tricky? I don't know. It just smells of really, if we as employers had done exactly what the government has done, we'd all probably be in jail or in handcuffs for committing fraud and misrepresentation. And that's what they seem to be doing against U.S. employers, about against employees and against businesses, uh, which they should have done before and cashing and asking for all those checks and premium, well, the premium processing, they, they pulled that off last week anyway, but before and cashing hundreds of thousands of dollars or millions of dollars in premium processing fees. 
There are a lot of rumors and speculation about what Trump may do next regarding immigration. We have received many questions in recent weeks and months, particularly related to rumors and speculation about the H-4 EAD program, and I think that's an extremely important topic for many employers who are now relying on H-4 EAD workers. As mentioned previously, the president would need to go through the formal rulemaking process to substantively modify or undo the H-4 EAD program. As of now, no formal action has been taken, but there has been some discussion about studying the H-4 EAD and its impact on the American workforce. For those of you who may remember from our one of our prior discussions and teleconferences of the Murthy Law Firm, there was a leaked executive order back from January of 2017 that implied that this regulation would very well be targeted, though as of this date, we have not seen anything that has been signed by the president on H-4EADs. Also, there is a pending lawsuit to cancel the H-4EAD program. That lawsuit had been filed way back in 2015, and as we had predicted, it has not gained any traction in the courts. In fact, that case was thrown out for lack of standing. The only action taken by the Trump administration regarding this pending case was initially as of January and February, to request a 60-day abeyance, uh, which as of yesterday, which is April the 5th, 2017, the Trump administration is now requesting, instead of the initial 60-day abeyance, they are now requesting an additional 180 days to carefully study and consider the regulation, and they promise to notify the court Uh, every 60 days on how they are doing with their research and review of the issues dealing with H-4 EADs. So whether they will undo the entire H-4 EAD rule or whether they will study it and hopefully determine that it is not worth dealing with potential lawsuits or other fallout or what exactly is going to happen at this time, Uh, We are not sure, and I don't think anybody's sure, and it appears from them asking repeatedly for extra time that they themselves, the administration, is basically weighing their options to determine how to proceed. So as we can see, there's a lot that's been going on just from this week with the H-4 EAD issue being studied in greater detail with the computer programmer uh, potentially being subject to additional scrutinies and possibly having a much more difficult time to obtain approvals, particularly with level one jobs. And the um, third issue was, of course, the much higher level and greater level of enforcement actions expected against employers that have uh, roving employees working off-site locations or if they're H-1B-dependent employers. And then the other issues that apply to you as employers are salary requirements, minimum salary requirements, which I'm going to ask Aaron to describe, and then the quotas issue. People are worried about the numbers for Joel to talk about it. So, Aaron? So, right now it's interesting because right now the way the existing law works is that if you're a dependent employer, you can still be not subject to certain attestations and advertising requirements if, for example, you pay an employee more than 60000 or the employee is in possession of a U.S. master's degree. 
Um, there are some questions that are on the table. And so some of the questions that have come up on the table is, will H-1B workers now be required to be paid a minimum salary of 100000 or 130000 so, you know, I went through a lot, a lot of explanation of how a law becomes a law, going from the House, going from committee to the floor, to being voted on, to going to a reconciliation process, to going to the Senate, to going through that process, to going out of committee there, to then going to voting and so on, and finally getting signed into law. So even though there are some bills that exist, just because a bill exists, most bills don't make it out of committee. Most bills don't process through to the end. The two committees that were, the two bills that we see that are floating around, one does talk about raising the wage to 100000 but I want to address the other one, which is the $130,000. The $130,000 that's out there, that's talking about dependencies for, for, for companies that are sponsoring H-1Bs. So they're saying, if you're a dependent employer, let's eliminate the master's exemption and let's raise the $60,000 to $130,000. It's not creating a minimum salary for the employees per se, but it is saying that the employer will be subject to the extra attestations and to the advertising requirement if, in fact, this were to come through. The 100000 I believe, is just a request to increase the fees. Neither of these have... The salaries. The salaries. Thank you, Sheila. Neither of these have gained traction at this point in time, nor because we're dealing with this administration, with the Trump administration, which these are not... Um, initiatives that are coming through Trump, nor do we necessarily anticipate that there will be any traction in that regard. Um, but these salary changes, which are part of some immigration reform bills, uh, at this point, there's again, as I said, there's no reason to believe that it would be something that would go forward. So we're taking a proposal of watching, monitoring, but definitely not addressing aggressively them. We don't want to bring it to the forefront. We want it to just die on the vine. Okay. And I know, um, Joel, there's been a lot of talk about the H-1 quota. Will Trump do something to reduce it? But there's obviously a huge demand because of the lottery system. What do you think? What's where's So, yeah. So I think it's important to understand that as with the salary issue, the quotas, the, 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 the quotas are set by law, by statute. So this is not something that President Trump could unilaterally just change. Um, this would have to go through Congress. They would have to pass the bill and get it to his desk for signature. Um, so right now, nothing is happening with the quota. Nothing's being changed. Is it going to be changed? Are our actions going to be taken? We, we have heard in recent, within just the last couple of weeks, we've heard the Trump administration saying they are going to be revisiting uh, H-1B workers and, and other uh, immigration issues. But what is it that they're going to do um, as far as quotas go? Quotas almost certainly will, if, if anything's going to be done, it's going to have to go through Congress. And a lot of the other actions, including things like changes with salary requirements and the like, uh, again, that's not something that you're going to be able to do just based on executive order. You're going to have to go through, and not even through regulation, but going through uh, going through Congress. Okay, thank you, Joel. And Aaron, what about the STEM OPT program? You know, other than the leaked, unsigned executive order, we really haven't heard much from the Trump administration about STEM OPT program. Uh, that leaked order did indicate CPT and OPT programs would be reviewed, and there certainly is a risk that any and all of these programs could be modified uh, or terminated, especially the increase in the number of months for the, um, for the STEM OPT. But again, this would have to go through an entire regulatory process, and it certainly is conceivable that the president will take no action on this program. Uh, my opinion is his plate is pretty full, I hope. Okay. 
Thank you, Aaron. And uh, so what exactly do you think to try to kind of bring this to a full circle? Because we always, as you know, make our teleconferences between 30 and 45 minutes, and we're about at 30 minutes. So what do you think the president's actually going to do? Joel, can I come back to you? Yeah, so I, I think the, the short answer is we don't know. Um, well, his, we know today two new things happened. Well, that's, Last that's week happened yes, every single we, we know day. what has happened. Well, this uh, week, I mean, I, I, the indicators I, are. The, yeah. So <laughs> I, I think his position on H1B has been a bit muddled. Mm-hmm. He's actually at first he came out very heavily against it, and then during he, the he, campaign, yeah, during the campaign, and then during the campaign, he had an about face where he, he indicated, you know what, I've changed my mind. Um, I, I see the importance Especially of the H1B program. Especially, didn't his wife program. come through the H1B model program? Uh, yes. Wow. Well, there, there, there have been some controversy about that, but we, we won't get into the details. But um, it, it's not exactly clear. But I will say that the, what we've seen this week, when when they were indicating um, the the ramp up of enforcement, is the the title of this was something along the lines of uh, putting America workers first. Something clearly that was playing on the the Trump campaigns, make America great or Put America first. The Department of Justice has also introduced something to this the week. Department of Justice came out um, this week right before the announcement from from USCIS about their their policy changes. They basically came out and announced and told employers, "Don't abuse the H one B system. Don't discriminate against U S workers." That's not a new policy. Obviously, you were never allowed to discriminate against U.S. workers. That's but it's always like a been warning. against the law. It was a warning. Um, and so I think this is going hand in hand with the ramp up enforcement. If you are an employer, I think the message is crystal clear. You need to make sure you are paying your employees. You're paying them on time. You are not benching them with or without pay, but certainly not without pay. Um, you are posting your, your notices at those work sites. These are all things that are going to come back to haunt you if you are not playing by the rules, if you're not auditing your files, making sure your I-9 files are in order. These are things I think clearly the president is going well, to be Well, they're looking targeting. at it as a big money generator on top of acting as a huge slap on the wrist for employers and businesses that are creating jobs and paying taxes. It's interesting. That, that's absolutely right. So what do you think, Aaron, the enforcement? Where's that going to go? You know, it's interesting because I think Trump has two competing interests that are going on, and that's what I see. On the one hand, he's pro-business, pro-building stuff, pro-generating economy and making America great again. And all these tech companies and these high-level uh, people have met with him that said H-1B programs are a critical part of it. And then at the same time, you see that there are some fraud issues that go on and all of those guys putting in to do a stop or to do prevention and to do things with H-1B. Um, I think that what you're going to look at is that the H-1B program is here to stay. And I think that what you're going to look at also is at the same time that he might even throw some carrots or enhancements to the program, he's going to rely very heavily on enforcement, on increased site visits, on uh, on uh, concern. I forgot the I'm mixing up a word, but on uh, con- on efforts between intergovernmental efforts between FDNS fraud detection and national security from USCIS, from Department of Labor Wage and Hour Division, from Immigration Custom Enforcement, from their E-Verify, E-S, um, SEVP program. I think all of these types of things are all going to be much more. Uh, working together in concert with each other. I think you can anticipate that he's going to be pushing the enforcement, pushing the penalties, pushing the deterrence even stronger, even while he keeps the program going, because he has to reconcile both sides of the fence. Uh, and at the same time, he wants to show that he is putting American workers first. And I, I should add one thing that we, we've been talking a lot about the H-1B program. 
Um, so, but if you have, let's say, L1 workers or potentially even E2 workers, we did see in the leaked memo, they specifically talked about site visits for L1. That, that's already happening. Um, that was happening under the Obama administration. And it was happening under H and L for a long time, and, since 2009. Right, and they in the leaked memo also discussed changes, potential changes to the E2 program. I'm not sure why they focused on that particular category, um, but that may be something that will be coming in the future as well. So, any type of of non-immigrant or immigrant work that you're 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 involved in as an employer. Keep in mind, again, compliance um, is going to be a big issue under this this administration. And one thing is very clear. If one government agency knocks on your door, they're all talking to each other very well right now. There are memoranda of understanding between the different federal agencies. They do exchange information. And, you know, while our goal was to really share what has happened, what is expected, what's been going on, the fact that on a daily basis there's so much going on and there's new stuff being released on such a regular basis and within less than a hundred days we've seen a lot more action a lot more panic a lot more fear among employers employees individuals majority of whom are complying with most of the laws and even when you comply you're nervous because you don't know what this means can i travel can i not should do i want to get stuck at the border i am an employer should i just be overly careful to dot my i's and cross my t's um, and so our goal is to empower you with information and knowledge to help you to be proactive in understanding how you want to proceed with everything. Do not, it is not on our part at the Murti Law Firm that we're taking any kind of a political stand against a particular party or against a president. Our biggest concern is to make sure that we can empower you with knowledge and information as employers to feel empowered to do the right thing and follow all the rules share information with you because we see the writing on the wall that enforcement against employers will continue to grow as tens of thousands of immigration and customs enforcement agents and other border security agents are being hired at uh, ICE and at other branches of the Department of Homeland Security. Bottom line is we do need to unite and work together as employers, as organizations, as groups that believe in fighting against injustice and fighting against what we believe is incorrect. Uh, the policy memo that we talked about that was just released on Monday, April 4th of 2017, and the new guidance which uh, we uh, also talked about that just got released. We intend to share articles and put those out on murti.com ASAP. So please stay tuned because our goal is to empower and educate you all uh, so that you don't waste your cosmic and spiritual energy being nervous, but rather we invest it in being proactive and careful and following the trends and monitor what is going on. I wish I could end on a much, much more positive and happy note as I often always try to do. But I, myself, Sheila Murthy, on behalf of myself, my two learned colleagues, Aaron Finkelstein and Joel Janovich, and on behalf of the entire Murthy Law Firm family, we thank each of you for making time to be a part of our teleconference today, to empower yourself with knowledge, and let's all continue to work together and push back when we believe that something is wrong. And if we have to file a legal challenge, don't hesitate to do so. That's how many changes happen in our law and in our constitution. With that, I hope all of your cases are selected in the H-1B lottery program, and we are able to continue to guide and monitor and help you. Have a great afternoon. Thank you.